Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Northeast Scene Podcast. This is Keith. And Tommy. How's everybody doing? We are here tonight with my friend and Syracuse legend, Grant Johnson. (laughs) Grant, thank you so much for being on the show and bearing with us through the many, many technical difficulties we just worked through. Yeah, that was a half hour of trash. That sucked. (laughs) We're going to publish that on our Patreon, which we don't have. <laughs> yeah, that's the outtakes. Uh, I'm I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. This is actually the very first podcast I have ever been on, which is probably true for a lot of your guests, but I don't really know. Maybe not. Um, so no, we're we're very professional, and we we only deal with the most seasoned people. So yeah. So yeah. No, but thank you. Yeah, this is awesome. So we're uh, we're the first. I, mm-hmm. I feel special. I feel oh. very special. I I feel special. We all we're all special, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah. So, what is your? Where are you right now? Like, what's your what's your life like in the midst of this uh, coronavirus thing? Um. So I am. I'm physically. I am in Indianapolis, Indiana, uh, in the attic of my girlfriend's sister's house, um, temporarily, just out for a visit. Normally, I reside in Syracuse, New York, still or again, depending on your view of time. Because <laughs> um, I have left and come back a couple times, but I've been back for almost ten years now. Um, and mm-hmm. you know, I I have a job. I work for a consulting firm that does a variety of different things, and I've been there for eight years, and I'm still working. So I'm, uh, you know, my life. I, I still work a lot. I'm just doing it all at home, and uh, that's you know that's what helps me get through the days. But then there's little you know things like this that I get to do that break up the tedium of just waking up and you know being stuck in conference call hell all day <laughs> so <laughs> exactly and yeah. I, you know it's it's the same thing for me i work mostly from home so i'm just working from home all the time now yeah and just just having this podcast and little thing little projects and little things to do has kept me like totally sane through this whole thing there's an i have enough toys and stuff in my house to keep me occupied forever so it's you know, yeah. it's, it's all good. It's all good no, to me. I think it's I think it's awesome. I think it's awesome you're doing this. Um, and I, you know, I think it's a great not not distraction, but just sort of like a thing to focus on outside of work and distracting you from the the horrors of, of everyday life these days. I think it's a it's a positive all around. So the consulting firm you work with. Mm hmm. Because you're always posting pictures of like historical Syracuse. Do you work like in some type of historical thing well i went to grad school um <laughs> way to so, be super specific about it you know, the, the, no, the I, I know what you mean um so i went to grad school for historic preservation um and i basically the firm i work for does all kinds of things it's it's really difficult to distill so i'll do my best to boil it down but basically um it's a consulting consulting firm that does like landscape architecture, urban planning, municipal engineering, civil engineering, and then permitting for a variety of projects um, in largely in New York, but in a lot of states actually we work in now. But like wind farms, solar farms, but basically 
Um, you know, a lot of these projects require that you review potential impacts to things like historic buildings and archaeological sites. And so that's where I come in. And that was, you know, I also have a bachelor's in anthropology. So I sort of like, um, you know, focus on impacts to what are termed cultural resources from, you know, either a road widening or, you know, someone putting up a hundred wind turbines in the middle of agricultural fields. You know, it's, uh, it's one of those jobs that I didn't know existed until I did it. <laughs> exactly. Um, that's, that's my exact, my exact career as well. When I try to explain to people what I do, they usually glaze over or ask me to stop. And, and yeah. I, uh, I do. You've told me several times what you do for a living and I'm still not a hundred percent sure I'm right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to sit down and, and break it down for you eventually, but, but not right now. Yeah. I recently, so my, my title is senior project manager. And I basically said to someone, I was like, that means I'm basically a secretary, an accountant, and like a, I forget what the third thing was, but it's just kind of like, you know, it's a lot of, like I said, you know, you're on calls, you're talking to clients, you're talking to other coworkers. It's this weird corporate limbo in a way. I mean, it's not a big, cor it's not a big company, but you know what I mean? Just sort of this very strange, almost uh, Kafka-esque reality I find myself in, um, you know. But. Yeah. And it, our job sounds similar, actually, because I do a lot of project management. And it's it's basically just, you know, wrangling, wrangling kittens, as they say, whatever needs to be done, get, yeah. getting the info, getting the information. Yeah. So but, I mean, it's it's a good job. And I'm, you know, it, it keeps me busy. And ironically, uh, as far as this podcast is concerned, keeps me away from the hardcore scene. But, you know, maybe that was going to happen anyway, now that I'm 40. But anyway, <laughs> we're going to get you back in. We're going yeah. right. to inspire. We're going to ensconce you in hardcore. Is this waiting. the part where I talk about teaching math for a half hour now? Can I do that? <laughs> no. no. <laughs> and if that, happens, if that happens again, it will be promptly axed out of <laughs> Only if you do it in, the, in a like, Matt Damon and Goodwill Hunting voice. That's the oh, only see, way that it would be acceptable. That's the worst part. I teach sixth grade math. So like I don't need any advanced mathematics. I have no clue how they work. Like I literally look at things like, like calculus. And I'm like, I don't know how to do any of that shit. Like I, yeah. I I know how to teach fractions and shit like that. I'm good with that stuff. That's, else, that's important. Yeah. yeah. So, so Grant, I knew you uh, growing up. We met on a, a particular message board. We'll, mm -hmm. we'll get into that later. Mm -hmm. But just, uh, just in the scene and bands you were in, we we got to know each other. But I don't know a lot about you, like growing up. Like, what mm -hmm. kind of what kind of kid were you growing up? Were you were you a popular jock? Were you? Uh, <laughs> Uh, <laughs> no, uh, I, I was not a popular jock. Um, I was not unpopular. I did, you know, I tried to, I, I tried different things as a lot of kids do. Um, I played football for a couple years in middle school. Um, and I'm, you know, for those of you that might be listening to this that don't know me, I am um, an above average sized human being. I'm 6'3 and 200 mm -hmm, pounds. Um, and I've always been kind of a big kid. So like, you know, I was sort of encouraged by gym teachers and whatnot. You should play football. And uh, it was not for me. Um, and oddly enough, in this, you know, this is really true. And I was thinking about this before this podcast, uh, just music was just the thing that I latched onto, latched onto as a kid, not necessarily playing it, but listening to it. And a part of that, I do credit my parents um, with kind of just being very encouraging of my sister and I, like, you know, buying us tapes and like always like we listen to music in the car. I mean, they're like very specific 
albums I associate with my mom from like, you know, when I was like six or seven years old. And um, so, you know, it was just this, even though they were never like, oh, here's this agnostic front tape, but you know what I mean? Like just that, (laughs) that relationship to music was very strong from a young age. So it was just sort of like, that was the kind of obsession that I've carried throughout my life with, with music kind of started as a young age, but as a kid, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I guess I was probably a little weird, um, but it's really hard to say. Kids are weird, man. (laughs) Yeah. And I had that same experience. I I didn't end up like sticking with any of my parents' music, but back in the, when I was like five and my mom would play Bob Seger night moves Mm. in the car, that was the fucking jam, dude. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and some of the stuff like, you know, my dad, so my, uh, yeah, my dad would, he was the kind of person that would listen to, and probably still does, listen to the same music over and over again. So maybe mm-hmm. not coincidentally, I've come to dislike a lot of the music that I was exposed to by my dad when I was a kid. But, um, you know, my parents have contributed in other ways to my musical growth, like become more interested in things over time. I've rated their record collection and found mm-hmm. like, like, oh my God, you have this record. Like, oh my God, you have that. Like, you know, starting with Jimi Hendrix and then Black Sabbath. And then, like, weirder stuff, like, you know, the United States of America or Pink Floyd, like, you know, as my, and it was so, I guess the the thread I'm following here is the importance of music from a young age, even into my life now. Tell us about how you first got into hardcore and some of the initial bands who made an impression on you. Yeah, so that's that's an interesting question. Um, And it kind of dovetails with, you know, talking about, uh, my parents encouraging an interest in music. So my entrance into hardcore, I guess, kind of has like a couple, there's sort of a couple threads that came together. One uh, has to do with heavy metal. Um, mm-hmm. My cousins, I have a couple of, of older cousins who, I don't know, they must be in their, they have, they have to be in their 50s now. But like, they were, you know, when I was a little kid, I, you know, I automatically thought they were cool just because they were older, but they were into like, Motley Crue, Iron Maiden, Judas Priest, they had the shirts, they had bandanas, they had posters, and I thought that was the coolest shit. So <laughs> I, I actually stole my cousin's Motley Crue tape of the first album when I was like six years old or seven years old or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. And so, she, you know, her it's her fault. She indirectly corrupted me into the life I have now by, you know, letting me steal her Motley Crue tape. But, you know, just... Uh, so sort of like, you know, there's there's a kind of a, a, a tie between heavy metal and, and hardcore in a lot of ways. Um, so I feel like it was sort of natural in that regard that I would eventually find that. But also, um, I, I got into bands through being into heavy metal and just through other things like soundtracks, like the Pump Up the Volume soundtrack, you know, um, the Descendants are on that. And, mm-hmm. uh, or, uh, you know, what's another one I'm trying to think of, you know, the Bad Brains, you know, bands that were just like, they were around because they were on MTV, but you didn't really know what they were. Um, and so like, you know, being into music and being into heavy metal, when I was a kid, I read like, you know, these goofy magazines like Metal Edge and Circus. And then that lead, led to um, reading Metal Maniacs, which actually in retrospect, despite being something you could buy at like a supermarket, had articles about like, that's how I first heard of Agnostic Front, for example, um, oh. and, and got a tape of theirs when I was 13 years old. Um, before I ever went to a hardcore show, I was just like, oh, this band looks cool, bought this tape. And what else? You know, Neurosis, not really a hardcore band, but they're sort of like hardcore adjacent. So were yeah. the, there were these sort of like threads that 
kind of all led were leading in this direction. And then um, my best friend, when I was like, you know, 11, 12, 13, he was sort of hanging out with this other group of dudes that were already going to hardcore shows. And uh, it was a situation where basically he had asked, you know, asked if I could go a couple times. And I'm like, oh, mom, can I go to the show? And she's like, mm-hmm. no, you know, mom, can I go to the show? No. And then eventually she caved. And the very first hardcore show I ever went to was at the Lost Horizon in Syracuse, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. I assume you've been to. Um, I, I don't know if I have. Didn't they before Hellfest? There was like Syracuse Fest. Correct. Right? Yep. Wasn't and, that where it was? Yes. Okay. Um, so you've heard of it at least. Um, yes. It's sort yes. of a. It's a. It still exists in some form, but it's not. It's not what it was back in the day, quote unquote. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, so basically, it was in February of 1994, and the bands I saw, Chokehold, were the headliner. Um, and then I think all three other bands, or at least two of them were from Pennsylvania, Autumn, uh, yes. Side Over, and uh, what was the other band? Sunburns, no, Sunburns Cold. Yeah, that's right. Um, and just like that was that was it. Not to be like corny, like, oh man, I was hooked. But like seriously, like seeing, it's one thing to listen to like heavy music, guitar oriented music, but it's another to like see it in person. And it was really Absolutely. just like, like yeah. this is... Like, this is what I'm doing now. And, you know, started going to shows like with that same friend. And then when he kind of like flaked out on me, I just kept going. Like I would have my my mom drop me off, you know, as like a 14, 15 year old at um, shows by myself because I was just like, I want to go see Snapcase or whoever um, that was playing just because it was, you know, it was like what I was into now. Uh, So that was kind of my introduction into the Syracuse scene. Yeah, when when I first when I saw my first hardcore show live, like not just at the I think the first show I went to was uh, before I really got into hardcore. But once once I was into it and I saw it live, and I you know almost had my head taken off during a Dillinger Escape Plan set, <laughs> I was I was hooked. Yeah. I was hooked that like that was it that that was what I did, and I still I still love it to this day. I think I played an autumn reunion show in <laughs> two thousand nine. Oh, or wow. 2010. Yeah, I, I think, I think it was that. I got to go back and look. Yeah, that's wild. That's, yeah, because when you said that, it just jogged my memory. At Kung Fu Necktie, where we were to see that mm-hmm. uh, that Maserati show the one time. Yeah, good, I didn't. Good I didn't venue. know. Yeah, I didn't know Autumn had done a, a reunion. I mean, I guess every you know every band has their their kind of day in the sun. <laughs> Yeah, I have to go back and look to see if it's them. So don't quote me on that, folks. So you you grew up going to shows in like the the vegan straight edge mm-hmm. Earth Crisis heyday, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. Tell us tell us about some of that. I'm I'm curious about how it was and how the shows were. Yeah, you know it's it's interesting, and this is something where I feel like I have a an interesting perspective as someone who was very much on the periphery and then you know became part of bands that were you know playing decently sized shows and like you know i know the earth crisis guys now and certainly didn't when i was 14 when i first saw them um mm-hmm. but um you know i was like you know i was kind of like a, a a grunge kid i guess and then i just wore like you know a flannel over an alice and Chain shirt like to my first show and everyone was fully entrenched in the like baggy pants bleach blonde hair chokers Thing. And, you know, there may not have been sideways glances from people, but it certainly felt that way. So yeah. like, I already like, you know, was kind of developing this sense of, I don't know, feeling alienated from the people around me because I, you know, I was, again, 
first went with like one friend and then no friends. And then eventually I, I found some other people in my high school to go to shows with, but they were also just kind of like, you know, goofy guys that like liked some of the music, but not really. So we were just sort of like this group of weirdos that went to hardcore shows. But there was a lot of that um, in the 90s in Syracuse. I mean, shows were like a big deal. I mean, the first time I saw Earth Crisis was like, was in July of 94. It was them, Snapcase, Chorus of Disapproval, Strife, um, and like three other bands. You know, they, there were always these Sunday matinees with anywhere from like four to six bands. Well, um, and they were, and the, you know, some of them really weren't well attended um, because the bands honestly weren't that great. Um, Mm -hmm. but then shows like that or, um, the month before that I saw chokehold again with bloodlet unbroken and undertow, which was like, well, it was, you know, it was amazing. Yeah. I mean, and I, I, I knew chokehold. I didn't know the other bands, but honestly, like bloodlet blew my mind. Like they were so tight and so heavy. I would have loved to see unbroken at the time. I just got into them recently. They're, they're really good. Oh yeah, they were, they were they were great. I mean, and I came to appreciate them more later because that was that was my first time hearing them. But like you know, yeah, there were. This was a time when like bands made it point to travel to Syracuse to play shows, um, nice. and they definitely you know, and, and so it was like people would come from Pennsylvania, New Jersey, like other parts of New York, Massachusetts. As a matter of fact, the guy who used to do very distribution. Um, mm-hmm. John Dudek used to table. He brought when it was just a distro with like a little paper catalog. He would come wow. to Syracuse shows like every time there was one, and I bought stuff from him. I remember, um, you know. So it was like these were like these these shows were like a rite of passage. Um, they were like a big deal, and yeah. so it was it was really interesting to be a part of at that time. And there was you know I did, because I didn't know anyone. There wasn't like this sort of like dramatic nonsense that you find yourself <laughs> caught up in. It's you um get to know people more and have to deal with other people's bullshit but you know i i remember it very fondly honestly that's awesome yeah Yeah. and what what was the first band you well this is a two-part question what was Mm -hmm. the first band you were in and what was your experience around that and i always ask because when i was younger I, i was like obsessed with the idea of being in a band and i thought it was like you know everything that i had to do and the answer to all my problems i remember driving around in my car and like practicing screaming and like mm-hmm. nud- nudging all my friends like you know i just wanted to be in a band more than anything and and when i did finally get into a band you know it's just it's kind of whatever like it's not it's not this great mystifying experience that you imagine it to be so what what was the first band you, or bands you were in and Give us some some experiences around around that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so there's 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 sort of a two part answer. To that one is like you know the ones that were just like me messing around with friends that never did anything, and then the first like what I would call quote unquote real band, right? Um, mm-hmm. So in high school, some friends of mine and I just like as a joke, we're like, oh man, we should do this band and call it Bludgeon, but spelled Blood Gin, and we all had like. Uh, this is like, you know, lunchroom nonsense we're talking about. Um, and, uh, yeah. you know, we all had aliases. Uh, God, I don't remember what mine was, but they were all stupid. <laughs> and, um, but I like, I pushed it into being a reality. I was like, guys, you know, we should do this. We should like, and so we would get together and like, we practiced once in my garage and then once in my friend's basement, but we didn't really have any songs. We just had like a riff that we kind of like, like I played a riff and like 
my friend uh, Jay, who played second guitar, who is now like, you know, he's like a professional musician and has like won a Grammy and stuff. <laughs> wow. Um, but, you know, his roots are in, um, he was already an amazing guitar player at the time, but he would just like solo and it was, it was so stupid. But we like played in the foyer of our high school on like, uh, you know, one of these field days where like nobody has class and they have like, you know, dunk tanks and things like that. But we just like yeah. dragged all of our shit into the foyer and just played this like, you know, impromptu set of the like two songs, quote unquote, that we yeah. played. So that was like the first not real band that I did. But I mean, that was, it, you know, it kind of, it, it helped prove that I could play in front of people and not, um, you know, burst into flames. Right. Um so when I, I went to Syracuse University for undergrad and um, my friend Jim Heffernan, who uh, also played, played drums in Bludgeon, um, but he had been in bands all throughout high school uh, and he was later in uh, Sparklights of Friction with me, which is um, probably how we crossed paths, Keith, later on. Yes. Um, yeah. But he was, uh, he was starting a band with uh, a couple other people and I basically invited myself to be in that band um <laughs> i was just like oh you guys you only have one guitar player can i can i play some guitar and he was just like yeah sure and so um that band was called set in motion mm -hmm. and we were around for a little over two years we did like a demo we were not great um <laughs> but it was you know it was fun we just we didn't know what we wanted to be uh it was yeah. sort of like this you know it was like hardcore punk broadly construed like we covered the dead kennedys but we also kind of like you know i was listening to a lot of like really fast like thrashy hardcore and like trying to bring that to the table but everyone wasn't into it so it was sort of you know it was fun um and we we managed to find ourselves uh there was sort of this like syracuse this this kind of dovetails with the previous discussion of like you know the mm -hmm. earth the earth crisis era of things you know earth crisis mach one before they first broke up you know there was this very strong like whatever you want to call it chuggy vegan straight edge hardcore scene but then there was sort of like there was a punk scene um with a certain group of bands that we sort of were peripheral to that but there were like people that came out to shows and these were shows that had nothing to do with the the earth crisis scene again which is like that's not a really like accurate way to to put it but you know for the purposes of this conversation just think of it that way um yeah. so but it you know it's they would cross over at weird times because of like who we knew so like you know this band set in motion one of our one of my favorite shows we played we played with disembodied the first time they ever played syracuse and it was like you know, it was so awesome. Um, they were awesome anyway. We probably weren't, but that's not important. Um, Your first time <laughs> seeing them, were they, the, I remember my first time seeing them in like 1998 and it, it was just this ragtag group of like Midwestern new metal looking kids who took the stage and I was like, I was like, what is this? Totally. And then they played and I was like, oh my God, like, were they, were they as impactful even back then the first time you saw them? Totally. I mean, I was not familiar with them but some of my friends were and there's actually the, the the photo that i posted on the message board that we're on is from that show and it's just like yes. you see four or five people just absolutely losing their mind and it was like <laughs> that and it was because it was on a floor it was a floor show and yeah. i was standing like right in front of them and you know they're tuned to like drop a so they're just like heavy as shit and it was just so yeah. you know it was it was super impactful the first time seeing them and they became one of my favorite bands thereafter for that reason because it was just like what the is this like i had never heard anything like that um or right. seen it for that matter so yeah it's like um 
by virtue of playing those kind of shows, I think I, you know, legitimized myself in some way so that I was able to find my way into other bands later with people um, that knew me as a someone who attempted to play guitar. <laughs> <laughs> How did you learn guitar? I just I would look up tabs. Someone I didn't want to play guitar because I just thought it would be too hard. So I played bass. I'm mm-hmm. like less strings. It's easier. But then someone just explained like E-A-D-G-B-E and told me how to read basic tablature. Yeah. And I was like, I was like, oh, so I so I would look up tabs online and just learn to play. And I, I kind of taught myself and mm-hmm. I can I have a good ear. I can figure it out if I listen to it and play it long enough. How did you how did you learn? Yeah. So I um, again, the the best friend I mentioned who I started going to shows with, he had a bass that his dad had given him. And he's just like, well, I have this bass. And I was like, OK. And so for my 13th birthday, you know, I got a guitar from my parents um, and I sh- certainly did not know how to play, but, um, managed to retune the strings in a way that kind of made noise that sounded like something. So, um, yeah, <laughs> it, it started with that. And then I took lessons for a year and then was just like, well, I don't want to learn fucking blues. Um, I still don't want to learn blues. You know, I've been playing guitar yeah. for 27 years. It's just not, that was know. the worst part about trying to take lessons, like legit lessons. They would bring out like the Mel Bay book and like, yeah. learn. you would learn like these blues scales. And I'm like, I don't want to fucking do this. Yeah, like, make sure I, you, you this know. is, is this in Lydian? Is this Lydian? Sc- fuck you, dude. I, I fuck <laughs> like, I yeah, like that, yeah, bro. I don't want to play any of this garbage. Yeah. It's <laughs> never, that has never been, something i have been interested in so like you know after about a year of lessons i was like you know what i'm good and uh, you know i was probably 15 at the time and just basically just played and played and played and learned i think i learned a lot i'm i'm like you keith and that like i think that's when i developed my ability to hear things and like listen to things um Mm -hmm. and that was you know that was has sort of been very useful to, to me over time because I've, you know, I've played with a lot of different people and a lot of people just can't, you know, they can't hear something and like figure out how to play it. But like, that's, you know, I taught myself songs by like Snapcase, Screeching Weasel, Black Train Jack. Um, just, right. You know, d- they were very easy songs, but I was just like, you know, that's how I learned how to play these, these different things. And then based on that, I would write my own songs or riffs. And then like also seeing bands, you know, that's, that's an important way to learn how to play too, because you, you watch people and then you say like, Oh, that's how they make that noise. And like, you you know, two years later you figure out that that's called an octave chord or, (laughs) you know, or or whatever the fuck, you know, like a triad or something, I don't know, or a tritone or, you know, just whatever, you know, but you just, you figure out how to make these shapes with your hand that make certain noises. Um, So in a, in a lot of ways, I guess I'm, self-taught but i've also i've learned a lot from the people i've played with especially people that were trained musicians in some way and and they like you know would show me something and they would say something like oh it's the fifth i'm like i have no idea what you're talking about um yeah <laughs> the fifth fret yeah. What? yeah exactly or like oh it's a pinch harmonic i'm like it's a oh, i don't know what that is oh that thing what? The, the squealy <laughs> thing yeah okay. like yeah i know what that is um so you know you learn you learn that way but a lot of it definitely was like self-taught and just like perseverance playing with people better than you really helps you too. oh totally it, it forces you to learn and play better yeah absolutely yeah i would agree with that so so i met you when you were in spark lights the friction and touring tell mm-hmm. us tell us how that band came together yeah so um 
Set in Motion, my first band ended in the beginning of 1999. And then I played with a couple other bands um, in the first half of that year. And then two of the guys that were in that band, again, my friend Jim and then Emmett Menke, who later drummed for Polar Bear Club, None More Black, and some other bands. Um, mm-hmm. He and Jim and I and our friend John, um, you know, I don't remember the real genesis of how we got together, but basically we just started practicing. And it just sort of, you know, John had a couple songs and based on that, I was like, oh, okay, I like, I like what we're doing here. And we just sort of like, you know, we, our first few practices were in my parents' basement and then we're like, you know, this isn't going to work out. We need to like be able to, to play somewhere more regularly. And so we got a, a practice space. I think we, we played our first show in like September of 1999 with uh, One Line Drawing, which is mm-hmm. jo- Jonah from Far, but it was just, you know. Just him, just starting. Him the and solo R- thing, right. Yeah, him and R2-D2. Um, and this band, Sunday's Best, who were on Crank Records and maybe one other local. But, you know, we were doing something that at the time, there wasn't there wasn't a, there anything like that going on in Syracuse, really. Um, right. And I, I, I noticed that yeah. when I went and listened to the record again. I was mm-hmm. like, this this would be like a lot bigger now because there wasn't yeah. a lot of like post hardcorey type stuff going on like that at the time. No, we were definitely like we were we were ahead of the curve in a lot of ways, um, and yeah. I don't mean that as like a, a a puffing you know puffing myself up or puffing up that band, but I I would agree with that that you know yeah. there, there were be- definitely bands doing stuff that was similar to that that were influenced by like the same things we were quicksand hum far yeah whatever, whatever. But, um, yeah, we, we, you know, our contemporaries, we didn't have a lot at the time, you know, it was kind of like the bands we were friends with, like this day forward, you know, you know, who you've interviewed a couple members of. I mean, we just like bands that we like played with a couple times and we're like, Oh, you guys are like cool people and fun to hang out with too. So like you're our buddies now. And so like, yeah, for being a band that was kind of more melodic and rock based, we ended up hanging out with, you know, bands that were (laughs) heavier and, you know, we just, I I don't know, we were sort of, we were weird in a lot of ways, probably because we were also from a scene that was not known for kind of like more melodic rock. So people just automatically assumed we were heavier or something. I don't really know. Yeah, it was, you either had to be straight, like a straight emo band or heavier, or like you're a heavier band that's going in the more rock direction. Those were like the only things. Totally. And the, yeah. the scene was more homogenous back then, too. Like, different styles would be on the same show together a lot more. Way more. It would happen a lot more then than it did now, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our, you know, we played, oh God, we played with every kind of band under the sun, you know, in the time that we were around, which really wasn't that long. It was only, it was less than three years. But again, being from Syracuse and like the, you know, our singer, our singer bass player was also briefly in one King down. So we had right. this connection to that. And then, you know, we ended up on trust kill and we were sort of a, a black sheep on that label. So people like, I mean, it was weird, man. Like bands used to, I, I have these vivid recollections of like, we would play with bands and they basically would like come up to us and be like, Hey man, you want to, you want to like take us on tour? I'm just like, who do, you, who do you think we are? Like, we're nobody, like, you know, like, just because we're on this label, like, it was so strange. And I, again, I do not mean that as like, you know, oh, we were this big deal because we weren't, but it was just like, there was this, there's a strange 
you know, cachet of being on Trust Kill Records that, I mean, that label was, was at one point in time a big deal. Yeah. Um, so, you know, but we were like a fish out of water so many times. And I mean, you know, not to prattle on and on, but like our last, our last tour that we did, um, at Sparkly's Friction did was, I think it was Josh Truskill basically, you know, said to Poison the Well, like, Hey, can you please take these guys out? Like they can't catch a break. We did have terrible luck as a band, which we can talk mm-hmm. about or not. Um, oh yeah. We'll talk about that. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, so it was with Poison the Well who were friends of ours. I mean, we had already played like a dozen shows with them before we went on tour and like, you know, great guys. Like we got along yeah. with them super well, loved playing with them. Um, and, uh, so they headlined and then unearth and sworn enemy and us and what the, f- like that bill makes no sense. And like, <laughs> we, you know, nobody already knew who we were, but nobody gave a fuck about us. Like, you know, I always tell people this story, you know, we played a sold out show at the house of blues at, at Disneyland in California. And Whoa. the house of blues had this policy where they took 10% of your merch sales at wow. the end of the night. Um, yeah. And poison the well sold so much that they refused to pay them. And they were just basically like, okay, well then you're not getting paid your guarantee. And they were like, fine, fuck you. Um, <laughs> but us, you know, we sold $60 worth of merch oh. and the guy was like, haha, no, really. And like, you know, our roadie was like, no, really. And like turned around and showed them our, our tally with like, whatever it was like, you know, a couple shirts and a couple CDs. And they were like, oh, okay, that's fine. You're fine. You know, just like that was, <laughs> that, was that tour in a nutshell. Just like, you know, we were not, we had no business being there. Um, it was mostly fun. Um, but, you know, that's that's kind of the situations we found ourselves in for whatever reason during the tenure of that band. So we were sort of, you know, we didn't know how to make that that lateral move into the world of, I don't know what, you know, like we ended up becoming friends with Thursday, but it's like, you know, we couldn't kind of, you know, capitalize in the way that they did, even though, you know, they were, they had definitely had like a bit more appeal than I think that we did. And yeah, because they had like they had that hardcore appeal with like sing-alongs, and I guess mm-hmm. people would even mosh too. But totally. I think a lot of post-hardcore bands had a hard time. Like I, I don't even remember Rival Schools being like huge. Rival Schools opened for Thursday. Yeah, I, rem- I remember someone specifically telling me like people weren't really watching them, which which just seems insane to me because it's Rival Schools. I mean, that first record is classic. You know what though? It's it, it, you can only go so far. It, on you know like one or two members um you know it's like you always think of rival schools as like oh this is walter's new band yeah Um, yeah exactly but it's like yeah but that that never there's it it wasn't quicksand you know and some people can't get over that and so it's like and you know i also think of you know super chunk is one of my favorite bands ever um Mm -hmm. and they sort of they toured with the get up kids opening for the get up kids at one point and they posted this photo online of like people up front in the front row just flipping them off because they wanted them to get the fuck off the stage so they could see the get up kids. Like some <laughs> people just don't care. You know, they don't, you know, they, yeah. don't even, they don't even want to consider new sounds. Like there's just a certain kind of music fan that like, they like what they like and they're not interested in anything else. So I yeah. don't know. Yeah. So is there any, is there any other bad luck stories you want to share uh, <laughs> about the band? <laughs> um, you know, I, it's, uh, I, I went back to, I looked on Spotify, our full length on Trustkill like is unlistenable to me. I hate the recording. Um, you know, we just, we didn't know what we didn't know. You know, we're all like 20, 
2021, 22, when we did that band and just like, you know, inner, we recorded that, that Tetruskill full length at Inner Ear, like, you know, or Fugazi and like all these other Discord bands and whoever else has recorded. And it's a, like an amazing studio. And mm-hmm. that recording sounds terrible because we didn't know we were, what we were doing. And the guy who recorded it, you know, who cut us a sweet deal um, <laughs> to let us record there, he was just like a total like laissez-faire engineer, like throw a mic in front of a guitar and like, okay, great, let's go. Um, yeah. So, you know, I don't like our recordings. I think that made a difference in how, you know, how we fared in the world. Um, in terms of every tour that we did was a fucking disaster in one way or another. Um, the first one, this is a good story. <laughs> All <laughs> the right, first I'm tour, ready. The first tour we ever did um, was supposed to be a month long with the August Prophecy, which was... Uh, Keith Allen, aka Keith in Hell, mm-hmm. um, his band. And, you know, we had played some shows with them, but again, a radically different band than we were. So they booked yes. the tour. Uh, their drummer quit or was kicked out. Keith canceled the entire tour, never told us. Then they got a new drummer and tried to rebook the tour. Meanwhile, we had already started said tour, not realizing that maybe half of the shows of a month long tour had been canceled. Oh my god. So oh my god. we played like we played Binghamton, we played Wilkesbury. They were touring in an airport bus um that broke down. They had to go back to Syracuse. So we're like, well, we're continue we'll continue the tour. And it was just like I think immediately after that we had something like seven days off before we had another mm-hmm. show. And then, you know, it was it was basically that for a month. Like play a show, have two days off. Like and in the middle of that, you know, it's actually funny listening to the episode, the the interview with Vadim. We also had a tire fly off of our van on tour oh, in, in Florida, like, <laughs> which is so crazy. Like that was, um, that was an amazing I- incident to say the least, but you know, like, <laughs> you know, scary, but also just like, I, I remember getting out of the van and looking at the axle and just bursting out laughing just because it was so absurd. Um, and it was just like, well, what else can go wrong now? Um, but you know, it was just like, we lost a ton of money. We played. I don't know, like 12 shows in 30 days or something, it, it, you know, it was, uh, but I look back upon it, like, and it was still a lot of fun because it was like the first tour I ever did, you know? Um, yeah. and like, but every tour we had after that was like that. It was either like some catastrophic van failure shows falling through or both. Um, mm-hmm. the last tour with, with poison all was probably the most successful, uh, successful quote unquote, but we mm-hmm. also like, we missed, three shows I think because we broke down in New Mexico and just like you know we just couldn't catch a break um, and uh, that was kind of the the theme of that band but it was still you know it was still fun we had a lot of fun um, yeah so we know there's a long list of bands who who had problems with Trustkill the label and mm-hmm. did, did you experience anything weird or, or no um <laughs> I want to be diplomatic. Um, you know, not really. There were some some things that in, at the time I didn't think much of. In retrospect, now I'm like, that's weird. Mm-hmm. Um, no, like dirty laundry to air, and certainly no nothing dramatic to the level of some of these other bands that have posted these like, you know, crazy stories and interviews or whatever online. I mean, right. like. Um, you know, I kind of, uh, you know, my only regret about that time is I feel like, you know, I was 
pretty good friends with Josh. And like, I think because of the, the dissolving of our band, our friendship kind of suffered. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I haven't, I haven't seen him or talked to him in years. Um, and, you know, when I have seen him, it's been totally fine. So it's like, there's no, there's no beef. I have no, I have no beef with him whatsoever. And like, whatever happened with that band? I mean, we broke up eight, 17 years ago, like a long time ago. So like, yeah. you know, it's, I, I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, the one thing I will say is that like he, it, he had, I think, higher expectations for a group of like 21 year olds to know what they were doing in terms of, um, you know, advocating for themselves in terms of like getting tours and like, you know, making money yeah. or whatever, when like we had no fucking idea what we were doing, you know, and like we weren't Poison the Well, we weren't 18 Visions, you know, we were, we were a weird band on his label. Um, so it's like, I, I don't know yeah. what we could have done to make things better for him. I was grateful so, that he gave us the opportunity, but you know, it was just weird. Yeah, you probably didn't have people beating down the door necessarily like maybe 18 Visions or Poison the Well did with tour offers and stuff. You probably had to do a lot of legwork yourselves. Totally. And that was like, that was one of the things It was a sticking point in the band um, because, you know, I did a lot of the booking for us and I just kind of would like, you know, run things by people like, hey, do you guys want to play a show on Long Island? Do you want to play a show in wherever, Milton, Pennsylvania? And we would go play. And a lot of the shows were not great and, you know, or they were with like metalcore bands because we were on trust kill. And then, you know, a couple of people in the band were like, well, I don't want to play these shows anymore. I'm like, okay, fine. Then you book us shows. And then of course they didn't. Um, <laughs> so it was just like a situation where that a lot of bands find themselves in where there's like one person who pulls a lot of the, the weight in terms of like booking and business. Yeah. Um, and, you know, other people don't put in the effort and then complain about it. But, you know, towards the end, like, you know, some of the other guys were trying to find us like other shows and tours and reaching out to bands. But again, we just like, you know, we didn't realize that like, Oh, we should probably like hire a booking agent, you know, (laughs) Um, that things that would have made a huge difference. Um, One one of the things that keeps coming up to me and I keep thinking about it is like, you have a, a, you have a lot of education. Like how did you balance school and being in a touring band at the same time yeah that's a good question so like when when sparklights of friction first started it was at the tail end of three of us being at syracuse university so basically like we were trying as you know as we got out of school we're like all right well uh we should try and do something and so that's like you know the few tours that we did were sort of post undergrad okay um yeah, but we were still, when we were in school, we were like doing weekends and like on breaks, you know, we did like a, a week long winter tour, maybe it was two weeks, I don't remember. But, um, you know, either way, it was basically, it was basically then that that happened. I didn't go to grad school uh, for another, until I was almost 30, actually, okay. you know, I took a, a long break. So that was, that was how I swung that, basically. How did the band end? Did the label say, all right, one record, that's it. And then the band broke up or did the brand, band break up before any of that? How, no, how did it go down? It, yeah, it, it did not. Basically, you know, I think if you asked each of us, you would get a slightly different answer. But basically, like, you know, we were not having a lot of luck getting good shows. And, um, you know, our, our drummer in particular um, wanted, you know, he just wanted to be playing. and. <laughs> I'm trying to be diplomatic about this again. Um, you know, 
it's nothing against him at all. But I think just, you know, he, he wanted to be out on the road and we couldn't make that happen. And so there were some kind of like tough internal discussions and we just basically decided like, okay, you know, we shouldn't do this anymore. Um, which was dumb. We totally could have gotten a new drummer. Um, mm -hmm. later, later on, someone in my next band after that, the funeral, um, which started while I was still doing Sparkly Sufficient was like, you know, dude, I wish you guys had asked me to, to play with you. And I was like, yeah, why didn't we do that? I don't know. Um, <laughs> you know, I think it's yeah. one of those things where just like the four of us, you know, John, Jim, Emmett, and myself, like that was Sparklights of Friction. Adding someone else to that wouldn't have worked. Um, yeah. So, you know, we played, we basically just decided to pack it in. And uh, we had, I can't remember if we already had a couple shows booked with Thursday. And just basically, it was like Thursday, Most Precious Blood, and Midtown. And we were, we were just like, or no, not, not Midtown, The Movie Life, sorry. Um, yeah. Uh, and we were just like, okay, these are our last two shows. So, that was how that ended. And our last show in Syracuse, um, our first last show, I should say, <laughs> um, it was great. You know, it was very just like, like, oh, it was, it was a good note to go out on. You know, there were a lot of people there and a lot of people there for us. They weren't just there to see Thursday. So it was, you know, yeah. it was nice. And then, you know, I definitely felt kind of adrift after that band. It was, it was a big part of my life, like both, you know, emotionally and time-wise and, and blah, blah, blah. So I was pretty sad, but um, the funeral kept, you know, kept me going and was a great band to be in. And then, you know, one of our friends, um, in Syracuse was diagnosed with brain cancer and later passed away. His name was Sean Liu, but there was a big benefit show for him in 2003. Um, and so Sparkless to Friction got asked to play that and we're like, well, of course, yeah, of course we'll do mm -hmm. this. So we played um we played that and that was i guess our reunion slash actual last show but it was kind of bittersweet because our drummer um had a medical issue that has since been resolved and he actually couldn't he only played like four songs i think before he had to stop so we were just like oh. you know it was a really it was a brief set but um you know again i you know i i remember i remember the good things and the bad things but overall it was you know it was a positive experience and i'm glad i got to to you know, everything from the, the wheel flying off to a racist tow truck driver picking us up in Virginia to, <laughs> you know, uh, weird, like, uh, itinerant homeless guys, like knocking on our motel door in New Mexico at two in the morning, you know, just like all these, these, you know, weird little experiences you have on tour. Like I'm, I'm very thankful I got to have all of them because of that band. Yeah. You can, and when you're older, you can look back on all of it fondly and be like, at least I got to do all that stuff. Totally. Good and bad. Totally. And, Folks, check out the full length. the The tracks are floating around on YouTube because is is it pronounced Lahome Robotnik? Lahome <laughs> Robotique, which is like not not French for robotic man. Um, but I'll tell you this: uh, I don't know why it's not on Spotify. Um, you know, Trustkill as a label doesn't really exist anymore. It's owned by some arm of Sony but Josh yeah. is not involved in it anymore. Um, I don't know why our album is not up on Spotify, but I have two boxes of Sparklights of Friction, Loam Robotique, I can't even pronounce it myself, Loam <laughs> Robotique CDs. Um, and if anyone wants one, email grantjohnson at gmail.com and I will send you one free of charge along with some Look stickers. Look at that. Because I still have a shitload of CDs and a shitload of stickers and I don't need them. So... <laughs>
<laughs> Hit him up. And Snake Charmer has always been my favorite on that record. That, ever since mm. the first time I heard it, it just always stuck with me. Like that that breakdown riff at the end. I just always remembered it for some reason. It's a good yeah. track. That's a fun song to play. Yeah, I'm I'm glad yeah. you like that. That actually funny story. So that song ended up. Josh managed to get us on some sort of weird hot topic sampler. Um, yeah. And it was also on Matt Hoffman had like a BMX show or something on ESPN two. And I guess it was played on that, but I never heard it. So like, you know, that it got out there, you know, he did do some stuff to help us. We, we just couldn't pick up traction on our own for whatever reason. So, yeah. So the funeral was your next band. Mm-hmm. Let's and, talk about that. Yeah. So uh, one of the tours that Sparklights of Friction did was with another Syracuse band called Darker Day Tomorrow. You know, guys that were in, another victim and other Syracuse bands, but they were heavier kind of trying to do like a damnation thing. Good band. And um, they sort of were coming to an end and the drummer, it's actually very funny. The drummer basically recruited everyone in the band by telling them that he wanted to do a band, like something they were interested in playing. So he called (laughs) me up and was just like, man, I want to do a band that's like the swarm. And like, I can't remember what else he said. And I was like, Oh fuck. Yeah. Like I'm totally on board for that. Um, but he told the other guys like something else <laughs> differently. <Yeah. laughs> um, so, you know, four of us, three guys from Dark Day Tomorrow and myself got together and started writing songs. And um, it was like, you know, we clicked instantly. We just like wrote six songs really fast and then like, oh, shit, we need a singer. And then John from Sparklights of Friction and One King Down, um, he was our singer for one show, but then was just kind of like, nah, you know, this isn't my thing. Um, yeah. So then uh, Ryan, who does Hanging Like a Hex, uh, he did the zine and then the label that still exists now, Hex Records. Um, mm-hmm. He tried out for us and just was like, oh, why haven't you sung for a band? Like, what the fuck? Um, you know, he was just like this, you know, a natural. And, um, you know, that was that. And that band, you know, we were around for, again, almost three years, not quite. But like, you know, I've never been in a band that practiced as much as that band. You know, we practice like three times a week, which I know is not a lot for some bands, but like most bands I've been in have practiced like once a week, <laughs> maybe, <Yeah. laughs> or once a month. Yeah. So it was like, you know, we were, that helped because like, I feel like we were really tight and like, you know, we went off live and like we wrote, you know, a lot of songs in that time. And it was like, you know, it was a really fun, just like fast, heavy, hardcore um, at a time when people, no one was doing that in Syracuse really. Um, you know, we got out, in the Northeast played a lot of good shows, you know, we caused some, you know, local drama. Um, so it was, you know, yeah, let, let's talk about that. Can we oh tell that boy. story? Which, which one? The, the getting, <laughs> can we tell the getting thrown off of Hellfest story? I will tell a version of it. Um, <laughs> All right. I'm ready. I won't, you know, I'll, I'll leave dirty laundry in the past, but, um, you know, there was a dispute, let's say. So this was Hellfest. Shit, what 2002, year I think? Yeah, you're right. It was 2002. So, you know, we were asked to play. There was That was the year where it was a group of five people were promoting the show. And, you know, it was huge. There were, it was at the fairgrounds, outdoors. There were tons of bands. You know, it was fun. <sighs> there was a, a personal disagreement, let's shall we say, um, between one of the promoters and the other guitarists in the funeral that culminated in an incident of physical violence (laughs) Mm. um and i won't name names or what the act was but it was like it didn't need to happen in retrospect it was you know it was done but yeah whatever um and it happened 
with all the other promoters around while they were being interviewed by a reporter. So it was just oh, like, no, yeah, <laughs> that's a was, bad, that's a bad scene. That's a bad scene. So it was this really tense moment. And like, you know, the, the offending band member stormed off and left. And I was left standing there with these guys like, um, so what do what? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> what do we do? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, long story short, we got kicked off the show and, um, you know, we ended up, playing a free show um the night we were i think it was the night we were supposed to play that saturday we played like a midnight free show which was awesome in our bass player's basement mm-hmm. you know we, we covered agnostic front and black flag and like you know there were probably like 50 people there or something and um you know a lot of the other bands that played that we were friends with disagreed with us getting kicked off the show so like a couple of them wore funeral shirts on stage and you know much to the consternation of the promoters and um you know, I went to the show and had a lot of fun, you know, moshing to the promise and Cro-Mags and, and whatever mm-hmm. else. Um, and it was like, you know, it was dumb. It was dumb, honestly. <laughs> um, yeah. It was just. Uh, it didn't yeah. have to happen, but it, it did. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I know that's not a that's not a juicy retelling of it, but it's just kind of like it was 2002. So that was almost 18 years ago. It's like, you know. Right. Sleeping. I like to dig up uh, dirt and, and, you know, present you know, it to the people. <laughs> so this came up. So uh, the funeral, while we're promoting things, the funeral double LP discography is available now on Hex Records um, and on yes. Spotify. Um, and it's great. It came out awesome. But there's um, so one of our friends, Chuck, interviewed all the band members and someone, I think it was him, maybe tried to ask about that incident. And I basically like squashed it. I was like, you know what? I don't no, I don't want to talk about that. Like, I don't want this band to be remembered because of some nonsense like that. You know, it's just kind of like, yeah. I don't know. At the time, it felt, we, it, you know, it made us feel like outlaws. Like, yeah, we get kicked off Hellfest. Like, who cares? Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, really, who cares? Um, and in retrospect, yeah, it was not necessary. So. so did you have trouble getting booked after that, like in that area? Nope. Not at all. Okay. We definitely did not play shows for that promoter, but it, I think if anything, it emboldened us to book ourselves a lot more. So like mm-hmm. um, that fall, we played a Halloween show that like 200 people came to. Um, I think that was the show where we covered Damnation AD. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a clip of that is on YouTube. If anyone is, you know, in front of their computers right now, it's worth watching. Um, but no, it didn't, it didn't hurt us at all in the end. If anything, you know, some people I think respected us more because, you know, they just, uh, I don't know. We, we just didn't take shit from people. That's, that's one of the things I liked about that band. We're just like, like, oh, you're gonna, you're gonna try and fucking do us dirty. Nope. No, you're not. Fuck you. (laughs) So (laughs) I I love that. I love that. At some point you moved to California. I don't Mm -hmm. know why or when exactly. I don't know why. why. Uh, no. (laughs) um it was uh the very beginning of 2004 um my ex at the well yeah my ex and i um basically just decided that we wanted a change of scenery um Mm -hmm. because syracuse is cold and snowy and we were sort of like we know what this is all about so we kind of randomly moved to um cypress california which is uh, just east of Long Beach. It's in Orange County. Um, it is a sort of nowhere place. But uh, it was, you know, I was there for two and a half years. My ex and I did not um, last long. You know, she left after a year and I stayed. 
mm-hmm. but we're you know we're good friends now. In fact, she plays bass and sings in the band I'm in now, which is called Difficult. Um, but- yes, folks, check out Difficult. Grant, is it is it on Spotify? Yes, our first album to heal is on Spotify, and we are in the process of mastering our second album right now, um, which is called Tea with the Times, and will also be on Spotify someday. Yeah, um, and I, I did listen to the. I think there's a first LP, right? Yeah, that's called to, that's to heal. Yeah, that's what I listened to. It's very good. Check it out, Thank folks. You. But continue. Yes. So, um, so she and I moved out there. It wasn't for her. She left after a year. I stuck around um, another year and a half, and I, you know, I was just kind of like hanging out. You know, I actually I made a bunch of friends there who are still friends of mine. Um, and I was in three bands at one point in time. Um, Knife Fight. We released a 12-inch on Lengua Armada Records, which was the singer of Limpris record label. Um, so I probably have the I'm probably the only person that's done a record on that label and Trustkill. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but um, and I was in a band called Dirty Girls that recorded a seven-inch after I left, and then another band that had no name but practiced a bunch. Um, but you know, I was just kind of like replicating my life in Syracuse, but working a not great job and not making enough money to sustain myself in California. And my Mm -hmm. living situation was going to change where my roommate was moving out. And I was just kind of like, what am I doing here? Like with my life. And so not knowing what else to do and not um, having the strength to tough it out. I moved back to Syracuse in 2006. So, you know, my time, my time there was relatively brief, a couple of years, but it was like, you know, I remember it. you know, I, as just like, it was such an important experience to actually like, you know, move away from home and like, see what I could do. So, um, you know, it was, it was a good experience from that perspective. That's good. You gotta, you gotta try, you know, and I, the moving to California thing was a thing like totally when my, when my first band ended, I was like, Oh, if the band doesn't work out, I'm going to move to California and just check it out. I went on a vacation to LA and I I loved it, Mm -hmm. but it's, what they say like good place to visit not a great place to live i i agree with personally i yeah. i wouldn't want to live there because i don't want to exist in my car and i just I'm, i love the northeast i mean this is the northeast scene you know you can't beat it so and I, I and i would agree with that i mean i um you know I, I recognize that phenomenon of people moving to california that's definitely i don't know if it's still a thing it certainly was then yeah. um and like we did the same thing like we basically took a vacation in like Long Beach and LA and we're like, oh, this is great. Um, but you know, life is not hanging out. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, that's so there's like everything else in between, and you're kind of just exactly what you said. It's like, oh, I want to go see a show in Hollywood. It could take 30 minutes or it could take three hours to get there. Like, and you have no way to predict it. Um Yeah, I was in Orange, I was in Irvine. Mm-hmm. in 2015 and i or 2016 somewhere around there and i go, i google maps and the, the venue's like three miles away yep. and i'm like cool this will take like 20 minutes to drive there at the most <laughs> and it was like an hour and a half yep to to the observatory and i was like yeah fuck this like how do people do this <laughs> they just you know it's it's so interesting to me like there's definitely like east coast type people and west coast type people yeah. I'm definitely an East Coast person, and the friends the friends that I made in California had that same personality, just like direct, um, you know, kind of 
I wouldn't say curmudgeonly, but like, you know, a little bit cynical and realistic and not like sunbaked and weird and passive aggressive, which is like a very, you know, no, no beef with my West Coast friends, but or, yeah. or anyone I knew out there. But there was definitely like a, there, there are types of people is what I'm getting at here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I love that Northeast edge. Like it's a sarcastic because, yep. you know, I, I would have coworkers on the West Coast and they, you know, they'd be like, oh, you're very East Coast. And I'd be like, thank you. Yeah, Thank you. yes, the, I am. The, the job I worked before I left California, I worked in a music distribution um, warehouse kind of business called SmartPunk, yeah. um, which doesn't exist anymore, and uh, it was affiliated with Fearless Records. But like one of our accounts, like I was a merch buyer, and we op- we we started a relationship with you know Hurley, the like surfwear, skatewear, whatever the fuck oh, yeah, they yeah, are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, like, I got to go to the Hurley, like, warehouse to, like, meet our sales rep and meet all these people. And I swear to God, it was, like, everyone there was in some sort of, like, movie about stereotypical Californians. Just, like, hey, man. Like, you know, like, <laughs> oh, hang no. loose. And I'm just, like, this is so fucking weird. Um, <laughs> and, but they let me raid their store. Like, yeah, whatever you want. And I was just, like, I don't want to wear your logo, but okay. Um <laughs> Um, so it was, yeah, it's very, it's a, it's a weird place. I agree. Fun to visit. I, I would live there if I had a job that paid me enough to live there. Cause it is very expensive to live in California. Oh yeah. Yeah. So Grant, clarify something for the audience once and for all. Mm-hmm. Are you vegan? <laughs> <laughs> uh, not now. Never have been. Um, okay. Have you ever been vegetarian? Yes, for 22 years this month, actually. That's, so, that, folks, that's an inside joke from our secret message board that we're not allowed to talk about. Sorry yeah. for that. You oh, know what's really wait, funny, though? We're not allowed to talk about that? <laughs> yeah, the first rule of the message board is that you don't talk about the message board. So I'm, oh, I'm violating the rule right now. Oh, okay, that's I didn't true. know if that came from like the message board person. I was like, wait a minute, I don't think he's... No. Like, all right, all right. <laughs> No, you know what's funny, though, is like that's not the only place that that's a joke. For some strange reason, I must like exude vegan because i have i have a, I have friends in syracuse <laughs> who like are like wait are you are you vegan or they just know i'm not and make a joke out of it and like you know i'm i'm vegan adjacent but i've never fully dove into that um you know lifestyle i won't call it a diet because it's not you know it's a whole it's a whole thing man yeah um so but i'm also not you know i'm I'm 40 years old. I'm not in the mode of where I feel like I need to constrain myself with uh, labels like that. Like, for example, I still do not uh, partake of uh, spirits or drugs yes. or cigarettes, but I also yes. don't go around being like, I'm straight edge because that's yeah. not. You don't need you know. to label it. Yeah. And now I wanted to ask you about that. You've never sure. done any of those things for your entire life. Not never. I've never smoked a cigarette and I've never been high. high. I have had alcohol, but I have never been drunk. Um, okay. So when, these are important did, distinctions. <laughs> when did you have alcohol? Was it just one time? Or? No, a few times when I was younger. So I grew up in a family, both immediate and extended of alcoholics. So I had, you know, sips of beer when I was very young and then like white wine spritzers at my grandparents' anniversary and champagne on... Um, new year's day but like it never it never appealed to me like i was just like okay this tastes interesting um yeah but i didn't so you've never you've never been tempted like hey i should try getting drunk or i should try this i will i will confess that there was an incident um where i 
was tempted, but I think it was just out of like depression and desperation. I was just like, well, maybe I should start drinking. And I like started to drink a beer. This was in my twenties. And uh, mm-hmm. I was just like, this does not feel right. Like I don't, I don't want this. Yeah. Um, and I just, you know, and no, I don't feel that temptation. Like I totally get it. Um, I get why people drink. Life is fucking hard, man. Y- yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, you need an outlet. And yeah. some people, and I probably don't have enough outlets, which is why I've just like, you know, have a lot of rage sometimes. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, you can only eat so many things and I don't know, spend so much money. And that's why people, you know, they drink and, you know, it helps them bond with their friends and, you know, have a good time or think they're having a good time or whatever. And I get it. It's a, sh- it's a shortcut to comfort, a shortcut to connecting with people. And that's, that's why I got heavily into it because I was always fascinated by people who just who just never did that and mm-hmm. envious at at points because I'm like, oh, that's just one thing they don't have to worry about. And and you know that I had my struggles, but now yeah. just just not having to just not having to deal with that on a day to day basis now is is very liberating. No, that's a good yeah. way of putting it, dude. I like because yeah. you don't have to. Just like the the not having to plan your day around X, Y, and Z is just yeah, like unbelievable. Like the the freedom you feel of like I'm not hungover or I don't feel like I have to go do X, the, like you know this this and this. And it's like yeah, it, it's such a nice way to go. Like it's a nice way to start the day. Like you feel like oh, yeah. positive. Like waking up, you're like, oh, I usually feel like shit. This is great. Yeah, just not feeling like shit and depressed all the time is 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 new to me it's great i actually look forward to getting up in the morning it's, it's well that's i remarkable. look forward to the day not to getting up let me let me clarify yeah, that that's fair well but yeah. also just like the mindset that it can put people in like oh i can only have a good time or i can only do thing x when i'm drinking um oh yeah and you know the flip side of that for me is like i feel like i have i have involuntarily opted out of many social situations because I don't drink and people just like don't invite me to hang out. But it's like, yeah, man, I will fucking party all of you drunkards under the table. Like I'll stay up all night. I don't give a shit. Um, yeah. Wow. <laughs> but um, yeah, maybe not now I'm a little tired, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> see, I won't, I won't go to a drinking party. I won't, I like, I, I'm not someone who can be around that and like party quote mm-hmm. unquote like being around too much drinking or extracurricular activity makes me uncomfortable there's like there's only certain situations i'll hang out in yeah i you know i'll i'll i'm i'm overselling my my interest in being around that now certainly when i was younger <laughs> though and like a lot of my friends again to tie this to california were like hard drinking hard partying i definitely had to drag a couple people literally drag people to their front door um, wow. on a couple occasions and I actually left my friend in his uh, backyard because I couldn't get in his house I'm like well it's not gonna well, it'll be alright it's pretty close <laughs> yeah yeah. Um, and he called me the next morning and was like what happened uh-huh. and uh, I said I didn't I couldn't get in your front door he's like oh it's you don't you just press the garage door I'm like what the fuck do I know anyway <laughs> uh, well, if you were fine. coherent enough to tell me that we would have not had this issue he was literally <laughs> punching me saying fuck you over and over again. I was just like, you gave me no options. Um, you know, I also missed seeing high on fire because oh, another one of my friends got so obliterated that I had to take him home instead of going to see high on fire. Keith. Um, oh, so. bummer. Don't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I was that guy on a yeah. weekly basis. Well, we also but, I, uh, we've also had uh, several times where we've gone to see bands and been like, "What the fuck are we leaving for? Why do we have to leave?" And then you look at the one person we're with, and we're like, "God damn it! All right, he's got. <laughs> All right, he's, he's got to. He's got to go. He's got to. He's got to go see a guy about a thing, or he's in a uh, a st- Grant, I remember your remember when your band played a was it the last show in 2011? What band was that in New York City? Oh, that was Night Owls. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I remember coming to that gig and I was sick, like I had a cold, so I was taking Dayquil and sneezing, and I was supposed to go out and party in New York City after the show, and thankfully, like my people didn't get back to me, so I purposefully took the last train mm. home so, so that I would get stuck in Trenton and not end up going back to Philly and like getting obliterated. So I I sat in the Trenton train station from like two a.m until the first SEPTA train ran at like 6 a.m. And my phone was dead, so I just had to sit there for like five hours. In oh, wow. And I, yeah, at the train station. And <laughs> But I set it up that way so I wouldn't end up back in Philly just getting effed up again. So that that's that's where I was at that time. It was wow. <laughs> I, uh, I did not, that's an interesting coda to that evening, yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah, I had no idea. Well, the show was good, at least. Well, thank you. Yeah, that was that was fun. And that band actually became difficult, basically. Um, three, three of the same people. Do you have any other burning Syracuse questions? I mean, I've been, you know, I've been a part of the scene, man, for 26 years, so. Uh, I'm gonna, um, I, I, have, I have one that, that has absolutely nothing to do with hardcore. Okay, let's get into it. Let's get into it. <laughs> All right. So, uh, I I grew up uh, playing lacrosse, and one of the things that mm. I I know about upstate New York, specifically Syracuse, and you're a big guy. Mm-hmm. Was that ever pushed on you? Was hey, go play lacrosse because you're big? So you know what? This is interesting. Um, my family moved to Syracuse outside of Syracuse in 1990. I lived in Illinois before that, um, and I had never heard of lacrosse before we got to. To, to Manlius, where where I grew up and went to high school, so like it was a total mystery to me. And you know, I like um, one of my neighbors had a lacrosse stick, and like we tried to like throw the ball back and forth. I'm like, what the fuck? This sucks. <laughs> um, but the high school I went to was like a serious lacrosse high school, yeah. so they had no need for someone like me that was like just learning what the game was at age 11. So I never got into it, but it was definitely like, you know, SU was, and I think still is a pretty big lacrosse school. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. And like lacrosse is deeply embedded in like local high school sports. So um, yeah, it was something that I kind of like became aware of and was like, nah, no, I'll, I'll do football instead. Gotcha. <laughs> I'll, I'll suck at something else. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Grant, thank you so much for being on the show. And folks, check out Difficult mm-hmm. on Spotify. That's Grant's current band. Check out the Funeral discography. That's out there Double on Hex Records. Right? Yeah, yeah, Hex Records. That's right. Yep. Plenty of copies left, I'm sure. Um. <laughs> the, the first Sparklights of Friction EP is on Spotify, and that LP is floating around on YouTube. But as Grant mentioned, email him, and he will send you one of the remaining copies if you're interested and you should be because why not yeah 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 it's it's okay again i can't be objective about it because i was involved in it but you can't beat free (laughs) that's right (laughs) well grant thank you so much for being on the show and uh we'll talk to you soon okay thank you thank you very much for having me i appreciate it so much okay so everybody we're here now with mr 
Michael Hart. Now, I worked with Mike at the Oxford Valley Movie Theater way back in the day. Like, what was that, Mike? 1999? Yeah, I started in November uh, 99. Okay, so Mike emailed me with a very, very awesome story today. So I wanted to get him on to tell it. So Mike, take it away. Yeah, so uh, like I said, in uh, November of 1999, I started working at the Oxford Valley Movie Theater. And, uh, you know, after being there for a few hours, uh, Rich Arnold came up to me and, uh, he was like, so what kind of music are you into? And, uh, I told him that Nirvana was my favorite band and I liked the, uh, the Deftones. I was adamant that I, you know, I didn't like corn or Limp Bizkit because this was, <laughs> you know, 1999. Yeah. And, uh, he was like, you really gotta, you gotta listen to hardcore. And then, uh, at a certain point, I guess Mike Shaw came over and they both were like, yeah, you have to check out the Dillinger Escape Plan. And uh, I was like, okay, well, like, what record should I get? And then between the two of them, a, a debate sort of ensued between <laughs> under, under the Running Board and Calculating Infinity. Yeah. And uh, they sort of went back and forth for like a good 10 minutes. And I just stood there, like, not knowing what they were talking about at all. <laughs> you know, it's funny because, like, uh, Tommy, I don't know if you were like this, but I, I was a real cultist about hardcore. Like, I felt like it was my job to convert everybody or get them to listen to the music. And I mean, a lot of people were like that. Did you do that at all? No, I didn't give a fuck. I didn't care. <laughs> I didn't really. Like, my thing was, like, I always kind of was into, like, a bunch of different types of music anyway. Hardcore was part of it. But, like, I yeah. always I always liked, like, I was a big death metal person as it was. So, like, I didn't really, yeah. I didn't give a shit. Yeah. So, Mike, continue. Yeah, so I mean, I definitely had like a few friends who would give me CDs and be like, check this band out. I would, you know, listen to the CD for a while and eventually give it back to them and be like, thanks for giving me this. Like, I love this band. And then by the time I gave it back to them, they were like, yeah, this band, like, they suck. Don't, don't listen to them. <laughs> listen to this. So there was definitely some of that going on. It was weird. I, I remember being at a show at Melody Bar with, with my friend. He didn't listen to hardcore at all, but I brought him to a show and we bought these CDs and, you know, we're like, this one sucks. Oh, that sucks. And my my friend is like, you guys buy these CDs and then you say they suck. Like, what is, what is the deal with this? I don't, I guess we were just like super critical. I don't know. <laughs> I don't yeah. even, I don't know what we were doing. So uh, I bought it. I bought a copy of Calculating Infinity and I like, I played it and I remember like, I hated it. I was like, there's no, there's no verse. There's no chorus. Like there's certainly <laughs> no, no melody. Like, and I hated it, but I, I just played it and played it again. And eventually I, I couldn't stop playing it. And then I, you know, it just sort of grew on me. Yeah, I mean, it, it really, you know, changed things for me musically. That's a difficult album, like, for your entrance into hardcore, too. Yeah, I think it, maybe a few months later, I was in a friend's car, and they were playing Opposite of December, and I had no idea who Poison the Well was. But, like, that was, like a like, a real holy shit moment, like... When you have this idea of like a band, a band in your head that like you haven't heard, but you wish there was a band that like did these things, and yeah. the opposite of December was like, I mean, if you told me right now like you can only have three albums to listen to for the rest of your life, opposite of December would definitely be like on that list, like no questions asked. It was just like a like this is exactly what I've been like searching for. I had the same experience with Caven because I didn't like I couldn't take like all the screaming and hardcore at first. Right. And then there was a there was a cave in song program behind where they have like a singing part and I was like, Oh, that's it. That's it. So I had like a similar experience there. But tell us 
Tell us about uh, when you went to the last Dillinger show. Yeah, so, you know, years go by and uh, A Life Once Lost uh, had broken up. Um, and I remember I had seen Dillinger at the, like on their final tour um, at the Union Transfer in Philly. And I just sort of thought that was it. And then when they announced that they were going to do one final show in New York, I was like, I got to get tickets. I have to. There's no way I can't. Like, this is the band I've seen most uh, out of every other band. I've probably seen them you know, 20 times. Uh, I can't not go to this. Uh, so me and my wife were sitting at, at both of our computers, just smashing, you know, refresh, trying to make sure that I got tickets. And I ended up with two tickets. And uh, the night of the show, I was working late. And it was, you know, it was January, I think. So it was freezing. And I'm sitting at my desk and I'm thinking to myself, I'm 35 years old. I don't know if I really have you know, I don't know if I have it in me to drive all the way to New York City by myself, you know, endure like the final Dillinger show and then drive all the way home from New York at like, you know, one o'clock in the morning or whatever it was. Um, yeah. You guys saw the uh, the picture I sent you. So Dillinger shows were like the, the one show where like I sort of didn't give a fuck like what happened. Like I was getting to the front and... <laughs> And, and like, if, if, you know, if I got hurt or something, like, I just didn't care. Like at a life once lost shows, I was always sort of a little, like somebody might die here, but at Dillinger shows, uh, <laughs> I just didn't care. I was like, you know, whatever happens, happens. And that was sort of part of like the, the magic of, of Dillinger live. Um, but so anyway, uh, I'm, I'm really on the fence as to whether or not I'm going to go. And the tickets on StubHub were going for like insane amounts of money. And I just happened to be scrolling through Facebook. And I had friended Bob Meadows at some point years before. And uh, he happened to have posted, does anybody have an extra Dillinger ticket? And so I messaged him and I said, I have an extra ticket. How are you planning to get there? And he said, well, I'm, I'm probably going to drive. And uh, so I messaged him back and I said, look, I have an extra ticket. Uh, if you if you pick, I live in Princeton and you live in Ben Salem. So I'm on the way to New York. If, uh, if you'll give me a ride, I'll give you the ticket. I won't even, you don't even have to pay me. And, uh, so that's what he did. He came to my house, picked me up and, uh, I got to spend an hour with him in the car on the way to the show and an hour back. And I, you know, I got to ask him all kinds of questions about, you know, what it was like to be in a, a pretty successful, you know, metal band and, and tour with all these other bands that, you know, I, I listened to, you know, as a kid. And, uh, you know, then we got to, you know, go to the very last cylinder show. So it was a, it was a pretty cool experience and have it all come full circle to, you know, like you find out about all this music from the, the original bass player of the band to, you know, 20 years later, you're, you're in the car with the singer, like going to the last ever Dillinger show. It's and, a lot uh, of amazing coincidences. And, you know, I wanted to get you right on to tell this story because it's just so strange that, you know, I got into this music the same way, like meeting Mike Shaw at the movie theater and Pat McCormick and them taking me to shows and me getting hooked on the music and just being taken on this wild journey. And, you know, the music, like our scene and all the bands that came from it are, are just incredible. And like that music shaped my life. Really. Yeah. It, it gave me all my best friends. Uh, it It took me places I never thought I'd go. It, you know, gave me the ideals that I have. And I'm I'm just incredibly grateful for it yeah i mean the whole thing especially for me was just like a wild just set of circumstances i remember like when i i quit the movie theater i wasn't there for very long and 
Um, I got a job at Walmart and, you know, a couple months later, Rich Arnold got a job at Funko Land, which was like right next to that Walmart. And, you know, at, I would go in there on my break and just sort of talk to him. And, uh, at, when I went in there, uh, one time, he was like, Hey, I have, you know, I have RCD and he gave me a copy of, you know, open your mouth for the speechless. And I, I put it in my car and I started to drive home and it was so, you know, different from anything I had heard that I, I, you know, I made a U-turn and I, I went right back to, to the store and I was like, Rich, this is like the, the most incredible thing I've ever heard. And, uh, he was, you know, pretty, pretty humble about it and pretty good about it. And, uh, I guess a couple months later, he gave me a copy of Fourth Plague. And that's when I was like, you know, oh shit, these guys are writing real, real songs. And, uh, and yeah, then, b- big leaps forward on on each of those early albums for sure. Yeah, and then when I saw, um, I was at one of the last Thursday Forward shows at Palanca Park, and I think that was the first time I saw a Life Once Lost actually play live. Uh, Rich wasn't in the band at that point, um, but like that's when they were starting to play stuff from um, you know a great artist, and then you know that's when you were like, oh, like okay, like this is this is a different level of uh, songwriting for sure. Absolutely. Well, Mike, thank you so much. Yeah, uh, thank you so much for coming on and sharing this story with us. It was awesome. And folks, these are the kind of stories we're looking for. So whatever you got, give it to us. Email us at northeastscene at gmail.com. Thank you, Mike. Yeah, thank you, guys. Yeah, Mike, right. thanks for coming. Appreciate it. So there you have it. There's Mr. Michael Hart. That was a, that was a great story. I was like, we got to get him right on to tell that one. Yeah, dude. And the fact that it involved uh, all those same people that like it's it's so funny that the movie theater was this kind of like mecca of that. Like, it's so strange, man. I I just like it's because Mike worked there. I'm telling you, Mike was like, what's the word I'm looking for? The the focal point for all this stuff, the movie theater, the the Shaw house, like everything went through there. He's magnetic. So we've gotten a lot of feedback from people listening to the podcast. And guess what, Tommy? We we have been heard in 11 countries. Holy shit. Can you, can you believe that? Not really. <laughs> <laughs> there are people in other countries listening to this. I barely listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sometimes, all sometimes I listen to it when I put it up, but it like there was one episode I had to re-edit the whole thing twice, and I was like, I'm done. I don't want to hear it again. So it sometimes I listen to it, and sometimes I don't. But but thank you everyone who's listening. You know, more people are listening than than we imagined at this point, and there's like more flyers. It's almost to the point where I can't keep up with them. But please keep sending stuff. I'm cycling through it and posting stuff. I like to space out the bands and the people who submit. There's a there's a system to all this madness. So please keep sending us stuff to northeastscene at gmail.com or hit me up through the Instagram too. But uh, a couple emails we got. One from Cody Clark. He says, my name's Cody and I sing in a band called Gloves Off currently on Upstate Records. Love your podcast, especially since I grew up going to Palenka Park, First Unitarian Church, Cafe Metropolis, etc. And have remained friends with all the dudes I met growing up there. So check out Cody's band, Gloves Off. Justin Sheridan says, thank you for making this podcast. I've lived in the Ben Salem area my whole life, and it's nice to hear stories about the scene around here. My first local show was Lamb of God, all is held A-Lol at Palenka. It was absolutely insane. I was getting more into hardcore at that time, and all of my friends were metalheads. I remember them trying to start a push pit at this show. And someone kicked them in the head, so they stopped. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. Oh, yeah. 
we talked about that show. No. I remember shit like that happening at at a Lamb of God show. Yeah, and he also Justin also says, I was wondering if you could shed some light on the venue in Ben Salem called the Cell Block. I've never heard of it until recently when I came across videos of immolation, incantation, gorephobia, playing there, and a killer Godspeed set there from the 90s. I, I've never heard of that venue, have you, the Tommy? The Cell Block? No, I've never heard yeah. of that. If anyone has stories from that venue or knows about it, email us and uh, we'll talk about it. And then Matt Canning says, hey, fellas, just wanted to reach out to say it's awesome that you're doing this. Just finished the first episode, and it's great and oddly relaxing to listen to. Now, I love that because yeah. that's what I imagine for this. I, I don't listen to hardly any podcasts, but I mostly listen to them when I travel. I travel a lot for my job, or I did at least. But I like having a podcast where it's like a community or like people talking. It's like it's like having friends with you on the road, and that's that's what I imagine for this one. So I thank you, Matt, for writing that. That's yeah. that's exactly what we're going for. And Matt's one of those dudes that. Uh, all right. So how do I explain? So Matt was in Shai Hulud, but uh, Matt was also uh, like one of the smartest people at my high school. <laughs> so uh, oh, oh really? Matt has written several books. I he I know he wrote one on memory called Never Forget Again. Um and he's dude, he's one of these people that like he fucking like like picks something and goes fucking full bore with it. Uh yeah. like for real. So <laughs> if he likes this podcast, it has to be good. It's fen- it's phenomenal then because he's just one of these people that like he's just he's super driven he's really really smart and on top of that uh he apparently has phenomenal fucking taste in podcasts so <laughs> <laughs> thank you matt i yeah his name sounded familiar i think he used to post on centrifuge he was of, of so he of was, which i used to also post so he was in a band called dark day dawning he was the guitar player from dark day dawning and the good the bass player from dark day dawning was um Jim, Jim, who did Centerfuse, right? Yeah. Centerfuse, and they were all kids I went to LaSalle with. So we also got some reviews on iTunes. Freddie Diaz says, I'm 15 minutes into my first episode after finding this randomly, and I'm already hooked. Nice. So fun to listen to. Thank you, Freddie. Hey. Andrew Bowman says, such a great concept. Love the deep dive on the Northeast hardcore scene. Being from New York, I look forward to much more. The All Else Failed episode is incredible. Yeah. Thank you, oh. Andrew. We agree. That, that's a good one. Listen to it if you if you have not listened to it yet. Brendan Ekstrom says, "Great show, nice." <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Brendan. Oh, and here's a review. They they said the best podcast, the best hardcore related podcast that is around today, and quite possibly the best podcast of all time. Five stars would listen again. You know who wrote that? Keith. M- yeah, I, I wrote our first review. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So, yo, something really funny I was just going to bring up, and I think this is great, and it's because it's all because... Wait, is it, is it going to be a short story? Yeah. No, it's all... It, Make it, it short. It's only about... It's it's because of the page. We were able to find the original audience of one tape. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, a person on Instagram, her name is, I think, Valerie... She yeah. sent it. She, I mean, it, it looks pristine. Like it, it's phenomenal. So I actually, I have it on order right now. It's coming from Amazon. I have a cassette player to uh, MP3 converter. 
So as soon as it gets here, I, I promise we'll have that audio up on, on the site so we can put it there. Um, and yeah, then, we'll put it up on the YouTube page. We can all make fun of it. We can all make fun of it. I'll, I will give out Tommy's cell phone number and we can call and harass him about it. Don't do that. <laughs> okay, we won't, we won't do that. But listen, everybody, thank you so much for getting in touch with us. Write us, continue to write us emails at northeastscene at gmail.com. If you like the podcast, post Instagram stories. You know, we want to we wanna grow this thing. Uh, get in touch with us. Give us five stars and comments on your podcast medium of choice. Yeah. As I always say, a little bit goes a long way. Yeah, because you know? the more you share it, the more people are like, you come out of the woodwork with, hey, I have a bunch of flyers or, hey, I have these old records or, hey, I have this. And it's like, that that's the stuff that we really, really, really want to kind of like archive and get together and, and talk about. And I, I think some of the things that makes this really like a fun adventure and stuff that we're really excited about doing is that you never literally know what's going to happen. Like uh, there's times where I open my phone in the morning and I look at her and it's like, there's 11 new messages on, on the Instagram. And it's like, shit, one of those could yeah. be something <laughs> fucking awesome. Like, or 11 yeah. of them could be something fucking awesome. You, never, you know. never know. There's always there's always cool surprises, you know, like the conversation we just had with Mike. And we, we just really love doing this thing. Yeah, it's sure. it's a lot of fun. And we want to continue doing it and continue growing it. And, you know, you guys are part of it, too. So yeah. thanks, everybody, for listening. And until next time. Yeah!